every college ignored him except the University of Northern Iowa. And he didn't even start on this Division I AA team until his senior year in college. And so he desired to get drafted after that, but nobody drafted him in the spring of 94. The Packers actually picked him up, but after five weeks, he was cut. You see, this was probably one of the moments where the thought of giving up plagued him the most. He found himself playing in the Arena Football League and NFL Europe for four long years. And in 1998, he was finally signed as a backup quarterback to the St. Louis Rams. His first season, he threw a total of 11 passes. Here's probably another moment where he could have easily been tempted to just walk away. Nonetheless, he stayed on as a backup quarterback that next season. And surprisingly, the starting quarterback got injured in the preseason. And so his number was called. And when his number was called, he was a force to be reckoned with. He broke numerous records that season and led his team to win the Super Bowl. It's such an impactful account because this obscure man who could have given up dozens and dozens of times persevered to be a Super Bowl MVP. Well, when I think about the church of Thessalonica, I think about a small church in a hostile city that was undoubtedly tempted to give up, tempted to turn back to bow the knee to Caesar, tempted to dismiss everything that Paul taught them, tempted to throw in the towel of their faith lest they be ostracized, persecuted, and excluded from everything that they've ever known. There was a real temptation for this church to give up, yet by God's grace, they stood firm in the Lord. Subsequently, this baby church made a massive impact on the known world. And Paul would go on to write to them that the word of the Lord rang out from you, that we didn't even have to tell people about you. People were already talking about you. Like Kurt Warner, this church seemed like an underdog, but God worked powerfully through them. And we'll see this as we study this book together. Well, as I have opportunities to preach this year, I'll be taking us through the book of 1 Thessalonians. This shorter epistle is so encouraging, inspiring, and convicting. And providentially, it actually pairs really well with the book of Revelation, as Peter will begin next, because Paul spends a considerable amount of time speaking about Christ's second coming. And so before we dive into chapter 1, verse 1, I want to give us an overview sermon this morning. I kind of want to take a bird's eye view of it as we look through the background and the themes of the book. I think this will help us not miss the forest for the trees as we go through this book verse by verse this year. So you have your copy of God's Word. You can open to um, 1 Thessalonians and we'll read the end of the book. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 13. We'll start there, and I'll read to the end. You can stand with me. Sorry. <laughs> we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the, like the rest who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, who are still alive in the Lord's coming, and they will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you all, children of the light, children of the day, we do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort and dis- comfort, and comfort the discouraged, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. Now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so as you have your Bibles, we're going to pivot and you can turn to Acts. I'm just going to tell you all beforehand that we can go to Acts 17 because we're going to spend just a little time there as well. So let's spend some time now thinking about the book's background. 
So remember in Acts 16, on Paul's second missionary journey, he was heading back to the churches in Asia to check on them, the churches that he planted. And in the night, a man came to him in a vision, calling him over to Macedonia. And so that's exactly where Paul went. He landed in Philippi, where he preached the gospel, was jailed, survived an earthquake, and planted a church. Just a normal day for Paul. They departed from Philippi to eventually find themselves in Thessalonica, Macedonia's capital city. This was one of the larger cities in the Roman province with a population of over 100,000 people. So this was a large city. It was also a very strategic city as it was located on the Via Ignatia, which is the, the main Roman highway that linked Rome with the eastern cities. And it was nested up against the Aegean Sea. So when you're trying to picture Thessalonica, you can really picture like a New York City. It had a diverse people, it had diverse cultures, and it had a booming economy. It was also a unique city. So it was a strategic city, a large city. It was also unique in that it was, uh, it was one of the few free cities in the Roman world. And this was very, very important. You see, to be a free city in a Roman province meant that you kind of acted as a quasi-democratic nation. You elected your own officials, you had your own currency, and you were freed up in paying most of the taxes. It was a high, high honor to be a free city, a privilege given only to the most loyal Roman cities. Again, it was hard to come by in something that every citizen from the least to the greatest would fight to maintain. So the context of the city helps us understand why Paul's gospel received so much opposition when he entered, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. This idea shook the very foundation of the Thessalonican culture. Now, the account is told in Acts 17, 1 through 9. So if you're not there, you can turn there. But we're going to look at these nine verses. We see in verse 2, Paul goes into the synagogue, as was his custom when entering the city to preach the gospel. The reference to the synagogue is very important because unlike, Philipp unlike Philippi, a synagogue was present. Uh, a synagogue was present, giving evidence to both the cultural diversity and just the sheer amount of people that were living in the city. So Paul comes into the synagogue for three consecutive weeks proclaiming the gospel. And amazingly, you can look at verse 4, here were the results. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. People heard the gospel, and people got saved. Everyone from Jews, Greeks, and prominent women. Thus, a small church was born in this large, strategic, and unique city. Well, the honeymoon phase was very short-lived because immediately following this birth of the church, opposition ensued. Jewish leaders incited a mob to start a riot in the city. They couldn't find Paul and Silas, so they dragged another brother named Jason in front of the elected officials. And look with me at their charge against this church. Look what they say in verse 6. 
These men have turned the world upside down. This is what they're saying. They're saying they're trying to disrupt our free city. They're trying to disrupt our economy and our freedom. They're acting contrary to Caesar's decree. And if they're acting contrary to Caesar's decree, Rome will intervene. And if Rome intervenes, we lose everything. They understood the implications of the message that Caesar and Jesus cannot both be king. If Jesus is king, they were saying our whole social order will be disrupted. And they've seen a microcosm of this, as this text says, that prominent women came to faith in Christ. So they've seen these prominent women in the city not bow down to Caesar, but pick up their cross and follow Jesus. The situation got so hostile and bleak that Paul and Silas had to leave the city. They were forced to leave this newly planted church, never to return. And commentators debate how long they were actually in the city. I think from this account, we can say we don't know the exact timing, but it wasn't long. Maybe at most it was six months. Now let's try to contextualize this together. Let's hypothetically say that you went into Afghanistan, one of the world's most hostile places to the gospel. Now the gospel went forth and several men and women came to know the Lord. Your first three months were going incredible. People were coming to know the Lord. People were being discipled. The church was thriving and you were working your way through teaching the whole Bible. Yet by the time you got to the minor prophets, you were forced out. Now, the church was still there, but you were not there. How would you feel at that moment as the church was in a hostile place, but you weren't able to be there with them? Well, I think you would be worried. You would be worried about these people that you'd grown to love. You'd be worried about their faith, about their doctrine. You would be worried about their well-being. I imagine that feeling to be fairly desperate and hopeless. Well, we've begun to put our feet in Paul's shoes. This is why he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 18, and you can turn back there now. He said, we were forced to leave you, but we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. Yet they were providentially hindered. Paul would go on to say that Satan hindered us. We wanted to come see you, but we could not get to you. We could not visit you. His situation was so bleak and so desperate that in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul would say, When we could no longer stand it, we thought it would be better to be left alone in Athens. You see, he emotionally couldn't go on preaching the gospel without knowing how his spiritual children were doing in Thessalonica. And Paul tells them about his fear in chapter 3, verse 5. This is what he was fearing. He says that he was fearing that the tempter had tempted them and that his labor might be for nothing. So think of Paul in Athens, a massive city in Greece, right? He is left all alone to preach the gospel there so Timothy can go back to Thessalonica to check on them. And from Greece, Paul then goes to Corinth, and that's where Timothy meets Paul. That's where he links back up with Paul to give him the news about how the church is doing. 
I mean, I got to think about Paul just anticipating Timothy as he might have saw him on the road coming. What is he going to tell me? How is this church doing? Well, this is what he says in verse 6. I love this. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought to us good news about your faith and love. I can picture Paul, you know, he's a good Baptist, so he wouldn't dance at that moment. But he was probably given like 40 fist bumps, like so excited that this church that he heard is standing firm in the Lord. And right after the fist bumps, he pins this encouraging letter that we have today. So now that we have a better grasp on the background, we'll spend the rest of our time looking at some key themes in the book. This is kind of our bird's eye view. And I have four themes, really, that'll help um, lead us today. And so the first one is Paul's gratitude for the congregation. So Paul's gratitude for the congregation, Paul's care for the congregation, Paul's exhortation to the congregation, and finally, Paul's hope for the congregation. And it'll be on the screen as I go through. But we're coming to our very first theme that we see in chapter one, and that's Paul's gratitude for the congregation. Look there with me. In his opening prayer, it's like Paul sets the tone for the whole book. Look at verse 2. He says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. His heart is overflowing with gratitude. And you really see this gratitude throughout the whole entire book. And it's not hard to grasp why that is either. You see, all of us can recall something that we thought we lost, but we, in, but we ended up finding that item. Take our brother Peter for example. He thought his CSB Bible was gone forever. But when the culprit, whom I will not name, I will save that person from the embarrassment, brought the stolen Bible back, the look on Peter's face said it all. It was like it was, he was smiling so much. He was so grateful to have his Bible back. And we can all recall something similar in our own lives. The thankfulness that wells up inside when we thought we lost something is now found. And now Paul's not welling up with gratitude because his lost cloak was found. No, it's something so much greater. The people that he loved, the people that he gave his life to, they are standing firm in the Lord. And he heard that good news from Timothy. He thought he might have lost them. He thought the devil might have tempted them back to the world. Yet they aren't. They are standing firm. And Paul begins this letter praising God for their conversion. Look with me at verse 3. Paul thanks God as he recounts their conversion. He says, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's taking a trip down memory lane here, and Paul recalls what the Lord has done in the lives of the people. It's like a flood of memories come rushing to him when he receives this good news from Timothy. And he starts to remember again and again their faith shown through works, their labor, their love displayed through their sacrificial labor and their hope revealed through their endurance. Well, I think we got to ask, where did this faith, love and hope spring from? Well, Paul tells us in verse five, as he continues to recount their conversion, he thanks God that the gospel did not come to them in word only. 
I love how Paul phrases this. The gospel didn't come to me in word only. It's not less than the word going forth, but something else must be present. Paul's teaching us something about conversion in these opening verses. Apart from the word of God, the word of God accompanying the spirit of God, as he says in verse 5, in the Holy Spirit. And look with me at verse 6, from the Holy Spirit. So apart from the word of God and the spirit of God, people will not be saved. You see, there's this universal gospel call that goes out. But it's the elect that receive the word, as Paul says, with joy. Why is that? Well, it's not something in us. It's not the goodness in us. It's not that we're unique and we're striving after the Lord. No, what happens is the spirit of God causes us to be born again. He opens our eyes and gives us ears to hear the gospel. And Paul's talking about their conversion right here. And in verse 9, he's praising God and saying, everyone's talking about it. We don't even have to tell anybody. They're all talking about how you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven. This is Christian conversion. And Paul is praising God for this church and how they have been converted by God. Well, I wonder how many of us in here at Christ Fellowship well up with gratitude for other people's conversions. Think about your prayer life. How many times in the past six months have you thanked God for different members' conversions to the Lord? You see, I know for me, this gratitude wells up when I sit in membership interviews hearing people's testimonies. About a month ago, I sat down with Kevin Dry and heard that brother's testimony. You should buy him a coffee, a cup of coffee to do that very thing. Upon hearing it, the Lord in his kindness, hearing how the Lord saved him, I was just welling up with gratitude for how the Lord converted him. And I'm convinced that when we know people deeply, when we know their stories, our gratitude for God's saving work in the congregation will overflow more and more. And I will admit this, this is probably the only time that I'll ever admit this, but pastors do in some ways have it a little easier because we do get to sit in so many member interviews. Nevertheless, I would encourage you this week to go out and find a member. Find a member that you might not know. Invite them to coffee, invite them into your home and ask them about their testimony. I'm guessing they'll be gladly, I'm guessing they'll gladly share. And I'm betting you, like Paul, will abound in thanksgiving upon hearing their conversion. Well, we've seen Paul abound in gratitude towards the congregation. Next, we'll see his care towards the congregation, and we'll see that in chapter 2. So that's our next theme, Paul's care towards the congregation. Well, many commentators go back and forth to why Paul to talk about why Paul wrote this next section in chapter two, verses one through twelve. Some people argue that there was opposition coming outside the church. Other people argue that he wrote this section because there's opposition actually coming inside the church. That the church was struggling to think well about Paul because he left them so quickly. They were asking questions like. Does he really care for me? 
Now, I don't think he's doing this because of the latter. I don't think he's doing this questioning that, that the congregation is questioning their care, Paul's care for them. And this is why. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 6. This is what Timothy reported. Timothy reported how this church always has good memories of us and how they long to see Paul. You see, maybe hostility was coming outside the church, or maybe, just maybe, Paul wanted this congregation to know how much he cared about them because he left so suddenly and he hadn't returned. So in this section right here, he gives kind of a defense of his conduct towards the Thessalonians. It's like he's saying, all right, I took a trip down memory lane. Now I want you to do the same. But not to think back to your conversion. No, think back to my conduct, to my ministry when I was with you. I've seen a few people take this section and teach marks of a faithful pastor. And I think that's justifiable and I think that's helpful. But I think it actually might stop short of what Paul's desiring to do. You see, Paul in chapter 3, verse 8 says this. He says, for now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. Yes, they are standing firm in Jesus. Timothy brought back this good news. But Paul desires that they would continue to stand firm in Christ. That they would keep their feet planted in the Lord. And how would they do that? I think Paul's telling them right here to follow after my example. To follow after my footsteps. This is discipleship. Paul encourages them by reminding this church of his discipleship towards them. Paul isn't simply giving them example of faithful pastoral ministry. No, he's reminding the Thessalonians of his example again so that they might follow, so that they would continue to grow in the Lord. Look with me at the text. You might call these a mark of discipleship, marks of discipleship. Right, we see the first one, the priority to share the gospel. Paul reminds them in verse 2 about the importance of sharing the gospel, even amid persecution, right? This is of most importance to get the gospel out. Get the gospel out to unbelievers as well as believers. And he says, don't stop, keep proclaiming. And then he goes in verse 4 to give them, I think, is um, something that they and we need to hear constantly. In verse 4, he says... Um, that he's explaining his motivation, and he says, it's not to please people, but rather God who examines our heart. If our motivation in sharing the gospel is to please people, well, then the gospel is bound to get altered. Because unbelievers don't want to hear about their sinfulness before a holy God. Yet we can't share the good news apart from sharing about their predicament that they stand before God apart from Christ and that's an utter place to be and so Paul's saying don't do it to please man no do it to please God all right next he says gentle towards everyone so a mark of discipleship is gentleness Paul says in the middle of verse 7 instead I love this we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children Paul depicts himself as a mother caring for her children. Now, there's not a single mother in here. There's a lot of mothers in here. And I feel confident to say that there's not a single mother in here upon taking their child home from the hospital, called their husband and said, 
honey, fire up the grill. We're feeding our baby steaks tonight. It's like, that didn't happen. I know for a fact that didn't happen. Why? Because babies cannot eat steak. They can only have milk. And a mother knows their baby's needs and only gives them what they can handle and gives them what they can handle in gentleness and care. And so in Paul depicting himself as a mother, Paul is saying two things. He both knew the spiritual needs of the people and he met those needs with gentleness. And he's saying, go do the same. Well, lastly, we see fatherly instruction, and that's verses 11 through 12. Paul really recaps his ministry, specifically how he encouraged, comforted, and implored each of them to walk in a way worthy of the Lord. So he wasn't brash. He wasn't shaming. He wasn't unaffectionate or absent. No, he was like a good father in the way that he encouraged them comfort them and warn the congregation to continue on the narrow path. I think Paul wants his congregation to seek his care for them so that they might pattern their lives after him. This is precisely how they will stay firm in the Lord. Remember these marks of discipleship and go do the same. Well, I want to ask you a question. When you think about the fruit of discipleship, what comes to your mind? If we were like playing family feud here, I think the number one answer would be what? If you think about the fruit of discipleship, the result of discipleship, I think the number one answer would be our sanctification, our growing in the Lord. And that's certainly true. But as I was studying this passage this week, Paul gives this other fruit of discipleship. And I was really blown away by it. Look with me at verse 8. Because you had become dear to us. What fruit is he talking about? The fruit of sweet and meaningful friendships. These people had become dear to us. And I want to pause to say that these brothers and sisters were not dear to Paul on day one. No, they became dear through the quality of time that they spent together. These relationships were forged through intentional hours, days, and weeks together. And I wonder if there are people in here who have ever said to yourself, you know, I just don't have great friends at Christ Fellowship. And if that's you, I do want to say that I am sorry. That breaks my heart that you say that. And we want to change that. But I would also ask you this question, too. Do you metaphorically have one foot in Christ Fellowship and one foot out? And if you answered yes to that, that might be the reason why. And I would call you to intentionally give yourself more and more to this church, to the members at Christ Fellowship. It's like approach people, even if you're desiring to be discipled. It's like take that step of asking some older man or even some older woman just to walk alongside and teach me. And I'll say this to the people that, by God's grace, are flourishing here, that have great friendships. 
you can look to people who are on the fringes. It's like the Lord has allowed you and blessed you so much to be in such a thriving church. Maybe some people are new here on the fringes. It's like you grab them and you be intentional about helping them disciple, helping disciple them and helping them meet other people as well. I pray that the friendships in Christ fellowship would abound more and more. I know I've been here for about six months and I feel like my friendships here have abounded because y'all are such sweet people. And I praise God for that. Well, we've seen Paul's gratitude and conduct next we see Paul in chapter 4 turn to instruct the congregation in light of the good news that he'd received on the church standing firm in Christ. So we see our next theme, Paul's exhortation to the congregation. Paul says in 4.1, he says additionally or finally, indicating that he's moving on to a new section. He says, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us, on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. It's a popular phrase and I've actually heard it numerous amounts of time, numerous amounts of time this month. I understand why people use it since our relationship with Jesus matters more than anything. But hear me out for a second. The religion that we practice actually reflects our relationship to Jesus. Everyone is religious in some way or another. So the question we must ask is, it's not are we religious, but is our religion honoring God? And this is the beauty of what Paul is saying right here. Paul is saying we don't have to guess whether our religion honors God. We don't ever have to wonder if what we're doing is pleasing God. And that is such a comforting thought. His word, as the psalmist says, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. If you've ever seen a runway at night, I know there's a lot of pilots in here, but it's abundantly clear where the planes must land. You can't miss it. The whole runway is visible from start to finish. And in Paul giving us commands starting in chapter 4, he's helping light this narrow path that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. He's giving us this visible runway from start to finish. And he promises that if we operate in this sphere, then our lives will be pleasing to God. That we'll never get to the end of it and say, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Why? Because we're doing what God has called us to do. So glance with me at verse 3. Paul sums up what we've been talking about with a single phrase. He says this. I love this. He says, for this is God's will. What's God's will? Your sanctification. What does that mean? That we're growing more and more like Jesus. And then he kind of fleshes that out, tailored to the people at Thessalonica, because he goes on in verses 4 through 8 to talk about how they keep away from sexual immorality. It seems like some members of the church of Thessalonica were struggling with Paul's teaching on purity. You see, sexual, sexual immorality was very prevalent in the city. It was embedded in the culture. A husband would often have a wife to bear children. He would often have a mistress for his pleasure and a concubine for his daily cares. 
That was just the culture of Thessalonica. Yet Paul states in verse 5, that shouldn't be you. He says, I'm not surprised it's them. Why? Because they don't know God. But you do know God. And verses 4 through 8, Paul tells them that you can control your own body in holiness because God has not called you to impurity, but to live in holiness. And then Paul gives them this compelling motive to stay sexually pure in verse 6 when he states, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. He's not saying that the Lord is an avenger of some of the offenses. No, he's saying that the Lord is an avenger of all of these offenses. I think this is a call for us, brothers and sisters, to be reminded to stay sexually pure. Well, if we glance at chapter 5, 12 through 22, Paul gives the congregation more exhortations to help light up the runway. I want us to look at just one of them because he uses the same phrase in chapter 4, verse 4. This is God's will for your life. He says this. He says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul is giving us another aspect of God's will, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Again, Paul is saying, you don't have to guess what pleases God. You don't have to guess with what you're doing. Is it honoring to the Lord? No, I'm telling you to rejoice. I'm telling you to pray. I'm telling you to give thanks. And if you operate in this sphere, then you know that you will be honoring the Lord. Well, I don't know if you're prone to do this, but for the longest time when I thought about God's will, I only thought about God's will of direction. So when the Bible actually talks about God's will, it talks about just two things, and that's his secret will, where we see in Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord, but also God talks about his revealed will, which is his word. How do we know what God loves? How do we know about God? How do we know how we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, his revealed will, that is his word. But I think theologians, because we ask these questions about, you know, where should I live or whom should I marry or what city should I be in? Because we ask those questions, theologians have made this new category called God's will of direction. And it's not a bad thing to ask those questions at all. But here's where I think we, we might move into dangerous waters is when we focus on God's will of direction and we leave God's, will, God's revealed will behind us. I think that's what at least I, especially in my early years of following the Lord, would do. I would be so focused on where the Lord had me. Am I going to live here? Or am I going to live there? Who am I going to marry? And I am saying those are great questions. We should ask the Lord for wisdom in asking those questions. But the amazing thing is, the Lord gives us great liberty to choose. The Lord gives us great liberty to be able to make decisions, knowing the decisions that he's made, knowing the decisions that we've made, he's put those in his will, and it just frees us up to be able to make these decisions in confidence and focus on God's revealed will, which is his word. All right, so we've seen in um, we've seen in chapters four verse, we've seen in chapters four and verse five a major theme 
And that's Paul's exhortation. And now we move to our very last theme, which is Paul's hope for the congregation. You see, Paul spends a considerable amount of time speaking on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually alludes to it in every single chapter of this book. So Timothy, in bringing Paul this glorious news of the church standing firm in their faith, Paul wants them to continue. He wants to, for them to do this even more. Keep remaining in Jesus. And he, and he does this by giving them instructions. And next he does this by casting their eyes to Jesus' second coming. So in seeing the promises that Jesus has given us, that they will remain in the Lord. And I told you he mentions this in every chapter. And I just want to prove this to you. We'll, we'll go through this quickly, but look at chapter 1, verse 3. I want us to see this and see the importance that Paul lays on the second coming of Christ and us to know it and, um, yeah, be rooted in this. He says in verse 3, their endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. The hope of Jesus' coming propelled them to keep going. Now go to verse 10 in chapter 1. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul's saying, when you think about Jesus' second coming, think deliverance. You don't have to think destruction. Well, then we see in chapter 2, verse 11, who calls you into his own kingdom. See, there's this already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. They're citizens of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God that Jesus will bring is not fully and finally here. It's coming when Jesus arrives. Now look at chapter 2, 19 through 20. Paul exclaims that at Jesus' second coming, um, his joy, his crown, his boasting will be in the church. It's amazing. Paul envisions presenting this church to Jesus and saying, this is yours. Well, we see in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul prays that the Lord Jesus would make their hearts blameless in holiness before God the Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's hope for the congregation. And then finally, in chapters 4 and 5, we come to our big section of Paul talking about Jesus' second coming, where he spends a lot of time answering questions that it seemed like the congregation had. Look with me at the first question in verse 13. They were asking Really, what will happen to my brothers and sisters when they die and Jesus hasn't come back? So they die before Jesus' return. What will happen to them? Will they miss out on the blessings of Christ? And this is what Paul says in verse 13. He says this. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. So he comforts this church. And this is how he comforts them in verse 14. Man, he's just directing their eyes to the gospel. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Remember the cross. Remember the resurrection. Remember that you are united to Christ. And if you are united to Christ because Jesus is alive, when you die, he's telling the congregation that everyone will follow in his footsteps. Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, 
I want to welcome you. I want to say we're so glad that you're here this morning. As I was studying this section, I was asking myself, you know, what do you think will happen when you die? It's like we all think about death sometimes. What do you think will happen when you die? What's your hope when you die? Well, is it that you return to dust? Or is it that your good works might secure eternal life? Friend, please look at me. If you are to walk away with anything this morning, I want you to walk away with the phrase in chapter 4, verse 14. Look there with me. Paul says, through Jesus. It's only through Jesus that anyone will be carried safely to heaven. That's why we talk about the exclusivity of Christ. The early church would proclaim that there's one name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. Paul would tell Timothy that there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And I wonder in me saying that if your, if your first thought is, how is that fair? How is that fair that there's only one way? And friend, I want to be honest with you, if that is your first thought, then it's likely that you don't understand your sin before a holy and righteous God. Our sin before God is so severe that God has continued to love us, continued to give us breath and life, yet we take the breath, we take the life that he has given us, and we oppose him. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels, that all those that are not for me are against me. That's what Romans 3 says, that no one is righteous, not one. But this is what Romans 5 says. And when you understand the gospel, this is the glorious thing that praise God that there is a way. Because Paul can say that while we were still enemies at the right time, Christ died for us. So even though that we're enemies before God, God loved us so much that he sent his only son. Praise God that there is a way and you can receive Jesus. You can receive that one way if you repent and believe this morning. I think any member would be glad to talk to you about Jesus. Find them after the service. Well, as Paul starts to land his plane in the letter, he talks about one more question that they had. And their question was in chapter 5, when will Christ come? What is the exact date and the exact timing of his coming? And Paul addresses this in verse 1. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't need to have anything written to you. Why does he say that? Because in 2 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul said, Don't you remember when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? So Paul reminds them that when he was with them, when he planted the church, he would talk about the second coming of Christ. But they wanted more information. They wanted to know exactly when Christ is coming. And their thought process was, well, if I know exactly when Christ is coming, when, then I'll be better prepared. And Paul says, no, no, no. I don't have to write anything to you. I've already told you everything. But like any good Baptist pastor, he says, I'm not going to write to you. And then he goes on for 10 more verses writing about the day of the Lord, which is so funny. So glance down with me at verse 9. 
after instructing the church that fervent preparation is a work while you wait mentality, he lands the plane with this great comfort to this struggling congregation. Kind of similar to chapter 4, verse 14. He just gives them the gospel. He writes, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He lifts their eyes to the gospel. Though there's so much chaos happening around them, though there's persecution from all directions, he says you do not have to worry about the second coming. Your eyes need to be cast there. That's actually how, how it will help you endure this world. Lift your eyes to Jesus where you will be with him for all eternity when he comes. Well, this is where I'll land the plane because this is where Paul does when he gives this church this great blessing in verse 23. He says this. This is so glorious. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. This would be great if he just stopped here, right? This is a great prayer, but he keeps going. He grounds their, um, their security in God's character, and this is what he says. He says, he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. That's amazing. Yes, look to Christ's second coming. He's seated at the right hand of Father. Also look to the God who calls you. He is faithful, he will keep you. And what a great blessing to this small church in such a hostile place. Let's pray. Father in heaven.